Hey, Justin. Yes, David. I've come up with a way to save the TV industry. And what is that? A podcast all about TV shows and the people that make them happen. Good. When are we going to start it? Ten seconds ago. This is TV Show and Tell. Welcome to TV Show and Tell, the TV podcast that's smarter than the average bear. I'm David Bodicum. I'm a TV producer and games consultant from London. And I'm Justin Scroggy, a TV consultant internationally known as The Format Doctor. And we have an epic guest this episode in the form of Ross King, MBE. Ross is a familiar face on both sides of the Atlantic as a showbiz reporter. However, his career has spanned a huge number of genres, from children's programs and quizzes to weather presenting and chat shows. Be sure to stick around for that, as he's got some very funny stories and some very useful life lessons to boot. But until then, what format news through yonder window breaks, Justin? In terms of new series, it's fairly quiet, but I have noticed an interesting report in The Hollywood Reporter, which says that... Tokyo Broadcasting System have submitted Ninja Warrior for the Olympics in Los Angeles. So is this this sort of fifth event that they're looking for as part of the modern pentathlon? Quite right. So basically the idea is that they take the obstacle course from Ninja Warrior and they add it to the modern pentathlon, replacing riding, which, uh, as you may know, rode into some problems in the last Olympics. So what they've been doing is testing this in uh, in Turkey, in Ankara, by having modern pentathletes and also obstacle racers from Ninja Warrior run on the obstacle course as if it was a pentathlon exercise to see what it see how it goes, basically. So really interesting and you know potentially very clever way of bringing a new audience to the Olympics. But it does make you wonder what will happen next. It makes you wonder what Baron de Coubertin or whoever, because he set up the Olympics, but he also set up the five events in the, originally, because he, he said that those were the five main skills that uh, an all-round soldier would would have needed yes. in originally. So, like, this is sort of breaking with tradition, unless in 1896 you would, would come across a load of scaffolding poles. Well, I think given that you know, the cavalry is now largely based on tanks, that they should add a tank round to the modern pentathlon, personally. The UK's broadcasting regulator, Ofcom, has said that it's going to do something really popular with everybody mm-hmm. and allow more advertising, potentially, Hooray. on breaks in the UK, which is just fantastic news. It's like the th- the one thing that I think would, would fix linear television and make them flock back is just more adverts. It's quite extraordinary, isn't it? People are already complaining about sort of adverts popping up in the middle of YouTube videos and things like that. And yet Netflix have announced plans to put adverts in the middle of their shows as a free option rather than people paying subscription prices. Yes, I mean, ad-supported streamers seems to be that it's going to be the way to go, which nobody expected, but that does seem to be the case. So I guess that maybe... ITV and Ofcom are thinking, well, given that people are going to get more ads in their streamers, then they'll be less resistant to getting them, you know, or getting more of them on ITV. But it it does seem quite extraordinary. I mean, I've reached a point with ITV, certainly, where whilst you do get adverts, if you go onto ITV Hub for free, they don't last anything like as long as the adverts on television. And I, I just can't bear it anymore. I just find it unbearable. And yet when you go on something like all four and you click on it something, it says your your program will start in four minutes and 15 seconds. Yes. <laughs> you just go, oh, I'll, just, I'll just go and build a matchstick cathedral or something. <laughs> I mean, I suppose it's a bit like the economy in other industries that ultimately someone has got to pay for the loss of revenue during the pandemic. And the broadcasters around the world lost, you know, up to 75% of their advertising revenue. And you can take some of that out by not making dramas and making more studio game shows and things like that. But there just comes a point where you've got to claw it back from somewhere. Otherwise, your investors will start pulling out. So, however, there is still the issue, of, as you say, of killing the golden goose where people feel that they've already reached a point of saturation. And, uh, you know, we end up just simply not being able to engage with the show in the first place because there are too many ads and they're too long. 
I need to make a correction. In our previous episode, I said that Touch the Truck lasted for 10 series in Azerbaijan. I apologize for the error. It was, in fact, 18. (laughs) Was it the same truck? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you you get it for a year, and then you have to bring it back and win it it all over again. (laughs) Fantastic. Another piece of reality news or news of reality and television coming together, this time in quite a dramatic way. This is from Ukraine. So OnePlus One Media in Ukraine, which is a major production company, has been pitching a series called The Last Man on Earth. It's a paper format and it's all about preparing for war. So basically they take a group of people from different ages and different social backgrounds, a very broad social strata, put them into two groups, and then they compete to save as many lives as they can um, in a series of scenarios that depict different situations of war. Mm. So pretty serious. And you know, one plus one agree that it's extreme, but they say that the world is in a very precarious state and that Gen Z viewers like to watch things that enable them to prepare for life in different ways, realistic programming. And so, you know, it's hard to say whether it's something they really intend to do or whether it's part of a message to say to the rest of the world, come on, guys, you know, it's happened here, it could happen there. But uh, anyway, that's what they've been pitching, The Last Man on Earth. It reminds me a little bit of BBC Two show, called crisis command Mm, which was where they they put a group of industry leaders under a stressful scenario imagining that they were in a command bunker and that there was something serious happening such as a pandemic or a a terrorist attack or something Mm. like that well there's not many new shows but there's one old show that is saying goodbye the ITV celebrity panel game Celebrity Juice has been cancelled after 25 series and 15 years it's been hosted by the comedy character Keith Lemon played by the comedian Lee Francis and it just struck me that that is one of those shows which really although it's been successful here it's so dependent on the hosts that it will never ever travel as a format Yes, I think I think you're right. I'm not sure that there's much of a format, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, I don't even, I can't even articulate what the format is. What is the format, David? I'm not really that viewer. <laughs> like I, I know, I'm I'm knocking on fifty. Barely even know what ITV2 channel number is. So. <laughs> okay, so two format experts admit that they have no idea what this show is about. But and yet, it was the 2012 BAFTA winner for the YouTube Audience Award. So, you know, right. we should have more respect for it, perhaps. Indeed. I don't know whether we still have a YouTube BAFTA Award. No, you definitely don't. That was the last year. <laughs> maybe was that the was maybe year? that was the reason. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I, can t- I can tell you in 2012, nobody in BAFTA knew what YouTube was. <laughs> and now it's time for our exclusive interview with the TV and radio presenting legend that is... Ross King. Joining us today is a Scottish journalist and presenter whose career spans a huge gamut of genres, including, and I'm going to take a deep breath here, children's programmes, quiz shows, news, weather, food, chat shows, travel, showbiz reporting, radio, as well as acting on stage and in Hollywood films. He's won four News Emmys, two Sony Awards, and, like me, has an MBE at the end of his name. But as mine's just at the end of my surname, I don't think that quite counts. Live from LA, it's Ross King MBE. Hello, Ross. David, Justin, I I can't follow that introduction. I feel like I should just stop now and say thank you and goodbye. (laughs) That's it. That's encapsulated everything and more. Now, I've never been to the West Coast. Like, how much of LA show busy? Is it all glitz and glamour around every corner? Are the hot dogs spray painted in gold? I mean, like, what's it like? Well, it really is a bit of a mixture. It is everything that you want it to be in many respects. You know, as I look out now and the, the sun is shining and I can see the Hollywood sign and it's uh, it's beautiful. The weather is just phenomenal. And, you know, Brits always talk about the fact that that's one of the big reasons that we're here. But, you know, it's got its darker areas as well. You know, I think sometimes when people come to, to Hollywood itself, it's not just quite as clean and spick and span as you want it to be. So there's different pockets, you know, and, you know, we have our problems here at the moment, like many places with, you know, the, the homeless situation is, is so sad at the moment. 
So it's it's a strange it's a strange place, and sometimes the juxtaposition is quite quite phenomenal <laughs> from uh, from the good and the bad and things like that. But it, in the main, it's a great place. Now, one of my sort of two theories about your career is that <laughs> why <laughs> why is one. <laughs> You have not once, but twice had to almost prove yourself as part of a, a sort of an audition or casting process. Um, the first time was you beat 3,600 hopefuls wow. to join the junior version of the Krypton Factor. Yeah. What happened was that I was a kid in Glasgow and I saw in the Scottish Daily Record, there was a guy called John Miller, had written this article saying that Granada Television are announcing that they're going to do Young Krypton, which is going to be the kids' version of The Krypton Factor. And a producer, Rod Natkiel, will be you know, looking for hopefuls, blah, 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 blah. So I just immediately took it upon myself. I have no idea to this day why I did it the way that I did, but I just immediately sent a letter to Rod Natkiel, care of Granada Television, Key Street, Manchester. I remember all that. And Rod then told me that I was the very first person to get in touch. Oh. And they hadn't even decided how they were going to do the additions or anything at all like that. But I was the very, very first letter that he... Imagine a letter back in the day, a letter. Uh, and he got that. And, um, yeah, I was so fortunate because, you know, as a kid going to Manchester and seeing Granada TV, because on Key Street it was that big red sign big luminous red sign granada tv where of course you know made coronation street etc etc so uh to go there as as you know pretty young and it was just the most amazing thing and it was my first network television show and rod not only was one of the most brilliant producers that i ever worked with he became a lifelong friend and has been a mentor you know and he, even to this day there are times when i will run things past him because his attention to detail as a tv producer really was second to none and i can give you a, a great example that um we were he would sit with me and at the end of young krypton it was very like the krypton factor the bf you know one of those quick fire rounds and then he would just be blatantly would go you gabbled that. I don't know what you said. No idea what you said. What did you just say? It was like a school teacher. And it was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. And then I did a show at Granada following on from that, which was a Saturday night show called My Secret Desire with Cheryl Baker. And one of the parts was that I had to invite people to the grill room. And it's funny, as I say that now, I smile when I say the word grill, because when I said it with my Scottish accent, Rod was like, what did you just say? <laughs> grill room. And I, so he said, you have to smile when you say grill, grill room. And that's his attention to detail, which still stays with me to this day. And I feel really honored and so lucky to have learned from someone who was, who was just brilliant. A game show is, is a hard thing, even for a seasoned presenter, managing the rules and the, everything mm. that could possibly happen and getting a rapport with the contestants. So... How could you manage it? You haven't even turned 18 by this point, I think. Well, what was interesting was that when I was lucky enough to sit down and have many dinners with the legend that was Bob Monkhouse, Bob taught me so much about game shows. And he said, you, you want to learn every single rule, back to front, upside down, roundabout. You have to know this better than anyone, even the person who's come up with a game show. You need to know it. Every every single aspect of it. And it was funny. I, I remember going to Holland, to Hilversum, to the studios there. And it was Jan who, of course, came up with Big Brother, et cetera, et cetera. And The Voice, Jan de Mol. And we did a pilot for a show called Love Is, which was based on the, the, the Love Is characters. And it was, we had, you know, 100 females, 100 males. And now we're going to do Love Is and all the rest of it. And we got to the end of the show. And obviously, usual stuff, you're doing a pilot, so everyone's worried about money and studio time. And we got to the end of the show, and we I realized that it was going to be a tie. <laughs> As we were going along in my head, I was thinking, I have got to invent an ending for this that we can actually have a win, because we needed to have a winner. And it was so funny. And all I could think of was Bob Monkhouse's voice in my head you know, he'd said to me, you know, learn this game so, so much that when it comes to something, you can deal with it. And it was so funny. I remember at the end of that, I said, okay, 
it's a tie, but now we have a tiebreaker. And I could hear them in the gallery going, you know, it's like that, you know, that Dutch, what's sure? What's, what's he talking about? He's saying, we say tiebreaker. We, we don't, for sure, we don't have tiebreaker. This, what's he doing? And, and it was, and I came up with this whole thing where I, I had to mime out a love is. And then it was like, and yes, and the, and the girls have won. And at the end of it, I remember Jan Dimol coming down and hugging me and going, the tiebreaker? <laughs> and I was like, and I thought, thank you, Bob, for teaching me. I'm fascinated about, about this concept of you having dinners with Bob Monkhouse. Where did, when and where did this happen? People like Bob, people like Jeremy Beadle, people like Des O'Connor. I got in touch with them again when I was very young and I wrote letters to them and just said, look, I would love to just have a little bit of your time if it's possible. You know, I'd like to take you for lunch or coffee or dinner or whatever. And they were all just incredibly kind with their time. You know, for example, like Des O'Connor, when I started doing a show called Pebble Mill and interviewing all these different guests, you know, I wrote to Des because he was a hero of mine and I loved his style and how relaxed he was. And Des was like, come to the show, come come into the, the dressing room beforehand, come and see the preparation, wow. come and see how we direct it on the floor. Then let's go and have dinner after the show and ask me more questions. Sorry, it's quite interesting this because I've never told any of these stories before. Oh, we love it. When I was a kid in local radio, so I was the studio factotum, Radio Clyde in Glasgow, and I was 15, 16, and I did absolutely everything. So Jeremy Beadle came in to do an interview with a legendary DJ we had called Tiger Tim. And I was recording it in one of the, the other little studios. And it got to one point and Jeremy was talking about, he'd come up with some book, as he always did, he's just the most brilliant of men. And it was a whole thing about something about snot. But what he did was he, he was doing it. He then paused and then continued. And he gave me this edit point. Now, this is back in the day when you had China graph pencils and actual razor blades where you cut the tape and all the rest of it. And I thought, he just gave me an edit point, like a real like little nod that made my life so much easier. And when they came out of the, the booth where they'd been in, I said, thank you, Mr. Beadle, and thank you for the edit point. And he went, you got that, son. <laughs> and I went, yeah. And he smiled. Years later, I was doing a kid's show called The 815 from Manchester. I'm at the airport in Manchester. I see Jeremy. So I go over and go, excuse me, hi, Mr. Beadle. Don't want to interrupt you. My name's Ross King. And he went, I know who you are. So I, ex I explained where I'd first met him. And he said, I remember. And I remember saying to Tiger Tim, that kid's going to do things. And then he asked me a question about part of The 815 from Manchester. And so, you know, then we became absolutely firm friends. Bob Monkhouse wrote material for me to do stand-up out here. You know, wow. these people were just so kind. But it was interesting. They said the same thing when they'd been younger in their career. They'd gone to, as they said, the old pros to ask them to get their advice. And um, it was so lovely that they wanted to impart knowledge and wisdom on me. And, you know, I still am a sponge. I just go, <laughs> take it all in. And as Johnny Carson said, whatever you learn, you know, wh whatever skill or whatever joke you hear, there's every possibility at some point you will use it. And I think it's so valid to this day. Why do you think I, I hang on Justin's coattails? <laughs> it's a very, got a very similar symbiosis. It's interesting what you say about edit points. When we've downloaded the files for some of our interviews, we've seen the waveform as it comes in. And there's like a question from me and then 10 minutes of solid speech from the guest. And, <laughs> and then another question from Justin. And it's like, it's like, our interview technique is a little bit rough and ready, it's fair to say. <laughs> when you're talking about live shows and chat shows, where you have to have that sort of unflappable quality, what's the sort of most unusual thing that's happened while you've had a live show? I, I think the most unusual thing I had was introducing a guest who, and it's very rarely ever happened to me, where I've just slightly blanked on a name. Oh, and then, and then I said, ladies and gentlemen, I give you someone who really does need no introduction. <laughs> <laughs> the end of it, they came to me and said, you know what, that's one of the nicest introductions I've ever had. <laughs> and I never had the heart to say to them, I actually just blanked on, on your name because they were huge. But I, I think, you know, as, again, as a kid, I watched, there was a little bit of me when I was a kid wanted to be a pop star. I think like every kid. 
And I remember watching the, I think it would have been the Brit Awards or something like that. And it was Noel Edmonds who was hosting. And I remember the next year, Noel Edmonds was still hosting, but all the pop stars had changed. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, maybe it's better to try and be more like Noel than to be one of the pop stars. You know, I'm sure people of my generation will remember Multicolored Swap Shop. And no style of presentation. I just had this wonderful feeling of at ease that I was watching this man who was in control. And that's what I always strived and hopefully still try to achieve is that whatever happens, it's okay. We're in control. You know, you know, people like Des Lynam, who are heroes of mine, they had that unflappable quality. And sometimes to achieve that, you sometimes have to be really honest and say, you know, we're going to go to this shortly, but I'll be honest with you at the moment, you know, there's all kinds of mayhem going on behind me or in my ear at the moment or, you know, and I think sometimes if you comment on things, you know, you don't want to, you know, rip the curtain back. But sometimes it does no harm to pull the curtain back just a little bit. You know, I mean, I have things on air which happens, you know, you probably even have it sometimes when you're doing these interviews that you get that echo, echo where your voice, where your voice comes back, comes back. And it ends up like Chinese torture, Chinese torture, because you're hearing, you're hearing, you know, all that stuff. And in the business, the feed that you get in your ear is called mix minus, which is you want the mix of the program minus your own voice. So you don't get that, don't get that, don't get that. Mm. And occasionally they, they will have not, the sound guys wouldn't have hit the right button. So sometimes when I'm live, I would just, you know, be chatting and then I would say, blah, 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 blah. And yeah, coming up, we're doing an interview with Marco. And oh, if the technical guys are listening, could I just have mix minus in my ear? And then you carry on. Mm. And, you know, I have a thing where in my studio, I get all my stuff from the gallery in my ear. And it's called IFB, which is the talk back. But I have a little piece of paper that says IFB has dropped out. So I can just hold it up in front of the camera when I know they're in the middle of, you know, a, a cutaway or something. <laughs> and I hold it up. And it's the easiest thing in the world because they see it rather than thinking, oh, what's happening? I don't know if Ross is hearing it. Thankfully, I haven't been caught on camera holding up my <laughs> IFB has dropped sign because I think, you know, that that's why I love live TV and I love having an earpiece and I love hearing the gallery. You can have talk switchback or you can have open switchback and open switchback means you can hear every single thing that's going on. And I always love that because I felt that if you're driving a show along, you can hear things even before the problem, you know, I can hear they've gone, camera three's gone soft or whatever. Uh, you can adapt it quicker than anyone else can, really. It's all part of being a team. That's the simple thing. Mm. But knowing that sometimes you're the captain of the team or you're leading the team out the tunnel and you have to take the responsibility. You have worked in so many different genres and sometimes changing from one field of work to another it's seen as something of a best a sideways move and sometimes a bit of a demotion. Mm. Whereas actually, I think in your career, you've made these sideways steps be like a sideways and upwards kind of thing. In fact, <laughs> rather than being called Ross King, I think you should be called Ross Knight because it's like, I think that's <laughs> like you, you're, you're that chess piece. You've, you've made these sort of sideways and upwards movements as, as, you, oh. as your way to the top. Like, so how have you managed to master so many different styles of presentation? Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. I'm not, I'm not sure I've mastered anything. But I think, again, it was, I had great advice. Again, when I was young, there was, a, there was a wonderful broadcaster, a guy called Jack McLaughlin, who was a TV and radio host. And Jack said to me, you know, you want to be a broadcaster because it will give you longevity. And I was a kid at again, in local radio. And of course, you want to be the top 40 DJ. You want to be the hip, the cool, you know, Ross the boss, the man with the tan, the king coming at you and all that stuff. And I was offered one of the art shows. And I remember saying to Jack, oh, they've offered me this art show. And he went, do it, do it. And I went, but I have no interest in opera. And what he said, do it, because it's all part of being a broadcaster. And I also then, in turn, took that term on for my career to do whether it would be West End musicals, whether it do acting, even, you know, now still trying to combine everything, you know, go on cruise ships and perform. And I just felt the whole idea was that you wanted to do as many things as possible that you were allowed to do that you could get away with, but also all helped. 
and that's what I've also felt as well. It's like that cross pollination, having acted, helps me presenting sometimes because sometimes you have to act a little bit. And I always feel that, for example, when I did improv and I I went to improv class here in LA for three years, it was just phenomenal. And when I coach people now for TV or even just you know you know CEOs of companies, I will bring in a lot of the stuff that I learned from improv class because it helps so much in what you do to you know there's a great improv thing which is yes and so you know someone says something you go yes and and you carry it on and what happens is and I see it with a lot of news anchors out here gets to the end of the show and they're trying to do that well (laughs) and finally you know and then some of them don't yes and it they go well and they just repeat what someone said or they kill it dead and I found that all the skills, if I can use the, the term loosely, the skills that I have or have used, I have just collected them over the years and then tried to put them into everything I do. And there's more great stuff from Ross later in the show. Now, the next topic is something I've wanted to talk about for a while. There is a subgenre of reality show or factual entertainment format which you might call the twist commission, where the show appears normal, but there's an amazing twist or surprise to it that is revealed either at the end of the program or the end of the series. But the problem with that is it makes the second series of that format very much more difficult for people to believe, either Mm. maybe as viewers or as the people taking part. So are there any particular examples that you're you're fond of or not fond of? (laughs) Well, I've... A well-known one was uh, Neighbourhood Watch. So if you recall back in the day, this was a ITV show with Dame Edna Everidge. And the idea was that she would have somebody on the show in the studio to interview as a guest. And what the guest didn't know was that Dame Edna had gone poking through their houses while they were out. So they would then put on a screen in front of them in the studio audience and, and start going through items in their house and through drawers and cupboards and into the garage and into the garden and whatever. And Dame Edna would make rude and funny and insulting comments about the things that they found, which was, you know, classic ITV entertainment at the time. But the trouble is, how do you do a second series? Because once people have got the twist, then no one's going to come on the show thinking that it's just a a regular interview show. Well, the the funny thing is, they did actually do a second series of that. Obviously, to some extent, everybody taking part, if they'd seen at least a little bit of the first series, would know what the twist is. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. (laughs) It's one of those strange things where... You know, as programme makers, we assume that no one will be able to bear a second series of things because the twist is blown. But viewers are quite often a little bit more generous about it because they just want they just want to see more more stuff. You know, I think to me that the, the formats that that exemplify this are things like Secret Millionaire um, or Undercover Boss. Hmm. Where the boss of a company goes in, pretends to be an employee, dresses up. And as a like an entry level employee, um, now what I find astounding is that this has had six series in the UK. It's had eleven seasons in the US, and you'd think like surely someone must have suspected <laughs> by now that like all of a sudden there is this new guy that's turned up for work, and there's a camera crew film filming them all the time, and yet no one seems to be aware that. Oh, hang on a second, isn't there a show about this? Yeah. Yeah, no, I know. It's extraordinary. Staying on the millionaire theme was Joe Millionaire. So Joe Millionaire was a series on Fox reality and the uh, the high point, or if you might call it the lowest point of reality programming in the US. And the idea of Joe Millionaire was that a series of women dated this bloke who was a millionaire, eliminated them one by one, taking them on different dates. And at the end of the series, they, reve- re- they revealed that Joe Millionaire was actually a penniless builder or construction worker. So as we mentioned before, they did do a second series of uh, Joe Millionaire, which was a total disaster because they couldn't find any girls really who didn't know that Joe wasn't a millionaire, except in Central Europe. However, they did recently reboot it 
It was called Joe Millionaire for Richer or for Poorer. And in this time, there are two millionaires, two Joe Millionaires. One is penniless, but the other one actually is a millionaire. So they've sort of got round the second series problem that way. So that sort of what you might call divide and conquer tactic has been used a little bit by the bridge. So the second series is the bridge on Channel Four, uh, which is an imported format that they've they've repurposed for their own purposes. So on the second series of that, the twist that they had was that yes, you're building a bridge towards the island, but da da da, there's also another team building a bridge from the other side. <laughs> right. It's only the team that gets there first that gets the chance to pick up the money. So, yeah. you know, that's that's actually yeah, quite a clever. a clever a clever way yeah. of mixing things up. Yeah. Another infamous one was I Want to Marry Harry. Yes. Where a group of American girls are taken to a stately home in the British countryside. That All they know is that they're going to go on a date with somebody famous, but they don't know who it is. And what the production did was introduce... A, a Prince Harry lookalike who arrives by helicopter and they see little bits of him and they gradually realise who he is. And then the show proceeds as they think that they are on a reality show dating Prince Harry, obviously before he married Meghan. A couple of other examples. There was one called Space Cadets, which was about oh, yes. pe- people imagining that they were really on a training course for astronauts for members of the public being sent up into space. And in fact, it was all a hoax. It was all a simulator. And as if that was never really done as a, it was too expensive to do as a second series. So that never really had the problem. (laughs) No, I mean, it was originally done as a stunt, really. It was meant to be, it was done over the Easter weekend. So as the joke proceeded, the production company started to get increasingly worried that the incredibly stupid contestants were in fact falling for it. They thought the whole thing would be quite lighthearted and they began to get more and more anxious about the fact that they were going to be massively, massively disappointed when they found they weren't going to be in space. So this whole complex had Russian, you know, things stapled, Russian things stenciled onto the walls because the whole idea was that they thought they'd gone to Star City near Moscow and where the Russian space program is based. But they were adding all sorts of jokes in Russian and little props to try and give it away a little bit and so on, none of which the contestants noticed. And as far as I'm aware, the only time that they begin to, began to suspect that things were not right, and this is, does not include the fact that the, in the spaceship there was gravity, they still didn't notice they weren't in space, was when they found a piece of grass on the floor of the... And this is because the captain of the space shuttle that they were on was so upset about this imminent, huge reveal and huge disappointment that he walked off and the producer took him for a walk around the set to try and talk him down and say, we've got to to finish this. And he got back onto the space shuttle, but he had picked up some grass on the bottom of his shoe. Right. And one of the contestants noticed that there was actually a piece of grass in the space <laughs> shuttle that hadn't been there a few minutes previously. So in terms of what are the solutions for a Series 2 or a Series 3, 4, I mean, the the main method that people seem to use is, first of all, cast people that maybe don't watch a lot of television, but secondly, have a really strong cover story. So what will happen is that the production company will arrive, but they might arrive with a fake name. They'll have fake call sheets mm. with the title of the show being a completely you know, fake show. Yeah, They'll have a, a different story as to why they turned up and why are they filming. So, for example, for Secret Millionaire, they'll just say, we're making a documentary about the local area and, and casting interesting people from around the area, rather than the fact that one of these people is a millionaire that's gone back to their roots and is about to give away life-changing amounts of money to people that they meet. Yeah, they're they're all good points. But I think what we've got to recognise the economics of this, which is that, you know, back in the day, broadcasters could afford to do these things as stunts. And you generally don't make any money on your first series. You generally lose money on your first series because you've, you've invested a lot of cash into the set, the graphics, the music, and the costumes, and, and all the rest of it. It's only in the second and third series that you start to claw back the money and make any kind of profit for the broadcaster. These days, with broadcasters being so 
risk averse. I think it's much less likely that if you go into a pitch with something that's got a massive twist reveal that would make a second series difficult, that you would actually get it commissioned. So I think the moral of the story is twists help get shows commissioned, but have a plan B and a plan C so that you can make some money next time. Yeah. And now here's more from the writer, actor and TV and radio presenter Ross King about his work in the US of A. You've worked extensively in both the UK and the US. So how do you compare the two? I mean, we could break it down a little bit. How do you compare it in terms of being on screen? How are you produced differently, directed differently? What different skills or skill set do you need do you bring to that? I think it's an interesting thing, Justin, that in terms of energy, quite often here, they want to be really up. <laughs> you know, it's you know, and they want you know, it's like louder, faster, funnier. There's that. And sometimes they don't let things breathe as much. But then equally, and also as well, if I'm doing Australian TV, I love the fact that there's a pace there that we sometimes don't have in Britain. You know, for example, say with a a news story, sometimes they will, you know, especially in Australia, they'll be like, so Roscoe, what's the latest? (laughs) You know, there's no, you know, and you know, we, we sometimes have a tendency to to give the whole story throw to some poor reporter who has to kind of repeat the story then throw to a vt which has the story again i call that the curse of absolutely <laughs> because that's all that you're left to be able to absolutely. say you know someone sort of says yeah so you know the there's uh, real problems in the health service aren't there and they go absolutely that's all you can say yes <laughs> yeah i i love teasies teases that really do tease you my my thinking is if it's a tease it's not just coming up later you know we're chatting with gary barlow i want to say coming up later gary barlow tells us the one thing that he will never leave the home without i want to have something that you know as you're walking away from the tv go oh hello i have to come back for that but sometimes in these teases the throw to you they've given everything away and you're and occasionally i have said Yep, that's right. <laughs> As you're saying, Justin, it's like the absolutely. Um, I remember years ago interviewing Bob Wilson, who was the legendary Arsenal goalkeeper, played for Scotland, then went on to become a broadcaster himself. He was at Highbury, the old Arsenal ground, and he had got his piece to camera in his head, and it was like, yes, I'm back at my old stomping ground here, watching my old team, Arsenal, who I played for for 25 years. Today, the visitors were Everton, blah, 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 blah. So he was standing there, and of course, it's his first piece. And the throat was, right, let's go and join uh, Bob Wilson, who's back in his old stomping ground of Highbury, where he played for 25 years. The visitors today are Everton, blah, blah, blah. blah. And Bob just froze for a moment and then went, Yes, I'm here at Highbury, my old story. He just thought, I'll just repeat it. <laughs> so, yeah, so I, there's definitely sometimes here is a, a pace thing. And sometimes there's almost sometimes a little bit of a, a fake energy, I sometimes feel. And sometimes it's nice to just let things breathe yeah. and not move, 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 move. But also, I mean, you guys know so well, you know, from, from British game shows, you know, we used to have that thing where there would be like a smattering of applause or light applause, whereas now everything is greeted with whoops and yeah and cheers and, you know, and, and false applause being, you know, stuck on all the time and audiences going wild for no reason and laughter tracks. So you moved to the USA in, in 2000 and you kind of almost had to prove yourself again by winning mm-hmm. a role as a weather reporter. Yes. <laughs> I think this has like a Hollywood film all about it. It's sort of it's like it could be the new Groundhog Day or something. <laughs> it felt like the Groundhog Day. Yeah, it was, it was great. I mean, I came here in 2000 with no plans other than to spend hopefully a few months, do pilot season here, as it's called, when they do. I was going back to do more acting again. And I thought, yeah, it's a great opportunity. But again, my thought was I'd just be here for a few months. And then while I was here, and then I picked up little bits, a couple of little movies. Some of the TV companies in Britain were like, have you moved to LA? And I said, well, not permanently, but I'm here. And they were like, oh, well, could you go and do this for us or help us out with that? And so it was all really nice. I was doing some radio stuff as well. And then a friend came to me and said, 
KTLA, which is a big, big station here in California, they said they're they're looking for a weatherman. And I was like, yeah, great. Well done. <laughs> and they said, well, they're going to audition people, but they're going to do it live on air. Because this was at the time when The Apprentice was just emerging as a big TV show. Mm. American Idol, Pop Idol, was emerging as a big show. So this idea of having judges and having people, you know, audition live was was a big thing. And um, so I said, no, not, not for me. Don't like any of the idea of this whatsoever. But again, as you said, I had kind of gone back to, for want of a better description, ground zero. You know, I was auditioning for things where I would go in and have a sticky label put on me with a number or my name or, you know, you would go sign in for parts and, you know, you'd be sitting in a room and waiting for a couple of hours before anyone saw you and things like that. And and absolutely nothing wrong with that at all. And, you know, I thought it was quite kind of refreshing for me that I had been very fortunate in Britain to have had, you know, a nice career and not had to do those things. So it was a nice wake up call to go, yep, back you go to that. And then my friend then said to me, look, why don't you just send in a tape anyway? Because you never know what comes to this. You know, they might see it and think, oh, Tartan Day or St. George's Day or we want a Brit for royalty or something. And I thought, well, actually, that's not a bad idea. So I sent it in. And then I was actually back in London and I got this phone call from one of the producers saying, we've now got it down to whatever it was, 150. And you're one of the 150. So we need you in the studio Friday. (laughs) And I said, well, I'm in London. I'm not coming back till next week. And I said, so it's not going to work out. And I thought, oh, that's that's a good way out of it. Because I still thought this isn't quite right. Anyway, I'll now jump to the end of the story, which was I went back the next week. They got me in. I kept going through these different rounds and just having a laugh and having fun. And weirdly enough, got to the end and it was between myself. Uh, You know, there was the weather anchor from Miami. There was the host from number one in New York. There were all these different people that were great characters and, and really good broadcasters and some really good weather people. And it got to the end and I, I, I was chosen and the prize was a month on air over the Christmas period on News at 10, which is a big show with a legendary host called Hal Fishman. And so that was it. But as I walked off the set, the station boss came up to me and said, you know, congratulations, we want to offer you a five-year deal. And I was like, thank you, but no, I'm going to do this for a month at Christmas and have a laugh. And they said, what? And I went, yeah. And now, again, as you get older in your career, you think – how did I have the Billy Big Bollocks to say no to a five-year deal on American TV? And then I was really fortunate. I did the month. It went really well. I enjoyed it. It was fun. My first broadcast, actually, was they said, so let's go to the weather and our new weather. You know, our weather anchor is Ross King from Glasgow, Scotland. And then I said, well, you live in Southern California. It's sunny. It's hot basically every day, get used to it, get over it. That's all, folks. And that was it. And they were like, wow. And I said, this is going to be the easiest gig in the world for me. And um, so they liked it. And they they said, yeah, we love that style. And they also knew then of my background of, of entertainment. And then they said, well, we're going to make you the entertainment anchor as well. And and so I did both for about a year. Because also by that time, I'd realized like people like David Letterman had been a weatherman and and, you know, it was a big, big gig. And also not being a meteorologist, <laughs> you know, I realized how fortunate I was. You've kind of got to get in, develop a rapport with the person you're interviewing pretty quickly, and then, you know, get your sound bites and get out again. Mm-hmm. Um, like, that's, that's quite a lot of pressure when you're, you're dealing with these very rich, famous people. <laughs> I think only once, I think, in my whole career have I ever gone in and had some questions in front of me. And that was only because it was a it was a big, serious interview and we had lawyers. It was one of those ones where we had to stick rigidly to what had been agreed. But I always find that I don't have questions. You know, sometimes the public will say, what's the chat going to be about? And I'd go, well, it's probably going to be about five minutes. <laughs> you know, the questions are in my head, maybe, but also I will relate to whatever the person comes back with. And then sometimes out here with a lot of the entertainment shows, you know, producers 
say to them, you need to ask them about this. You need to ask them this. You need to get that in. Whereas I'm very lucky that my bosses tend to just let me go. And I go with the flow sometimes. And, and you know, you know, last week interviewing Mark Cohen from Take That, I've known Mark for 30 years. But you go into the interview and part of you is thinking, this guy's been across my kitchen table. You know, I've known him all these years. And then you're trying to think of something different. But then equally, you want to go with the flow. And then, and then also you want to ask questions that, Mrs. Jones and Coventry would like to hear the answer to. Mm. So it's, it's kind of juggling a little bit, which thankfully for me is experience gets you through it all. We're running out of time, but I wanted to ask you a little bit about your acting career because you've been in a number of films. Mm. Have any, I, I haven't researched them thoroughly. But Good. <laughs> <laughs> have, you, have you had that sort of typical role that they give British presenters of newsreader outside office block waiting for Superman to arrive? <laughs> No, um, weirdly enough, the only one where I did that was The Day After Tomorrow, which was a huge blockbuster. And I was playing the newsreader who in it announces that the Queen has died. <gasps> so it was a big, big moment. And I'm in like the CNN studios and the whole bit is there. And then there was another famous actor who I then bumped into and... I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm doing the day after tomorrow. And I went, oh, I said, I'm doing that as well. And he said, oh, he said, my part will get cut. He said, because it's a kind of sidebar story and it's a family. And he said, you know, I've read the script and I go, yeah, that can end up in the cutting room floor. And I said, oh, I said, well, mine can't. He said, why? I said, because I announced the biggest death. I said, so that's, that's it. My part can't be cut out at all. Comes to the movie. The queen didn't die in the movie. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so the weirdest thing is that I'm on the DVD and it's my voice that you hear in all the different things. I'm credited on the movie, but the actual part didn't end up in it. But yeah, I still get residuals for for not saying the words that nobody ever wanted to say anyway. <laughs> well, I'm sure it's only a matter of time before there's a star outside Grauman's Chinese Theatre with your name on it. <laughs> Until then, Ross, thank you so much for joining us on TV Show and Tell. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much. So now it's time for our jargon buster. And our word today is co-viewing. Co-viewing. So, Justin, what is co-viewing and why is it important? Co-viewing is very simply watching television with other people, whether it's a group of friends or more particularly your family. So it means more eyes on screen at the same time. Why is it important? Well, it's important to broadcasters and advertisers because what they want is shows to be watched by a broader range of people. I mean, back in the day, broadcasters, you know, commissioned shows for 18 to 24-year-olds and 24 to 37-year-olds and 37-year-olds to 50-year-olds and so on and so on. These days, with such a fractured audience, broadcasters will take anybody they can get, particularly for expensive shows, and they want as many people as possible to be watching at the same time. So that's why they're so keen on co-viewing. So back when I used to watch things with my dad, let's say, mm-hmm. You would sit down, let's say, on a Sunday afternoon and watch something like Scrap Heap Challenge, like the technology type challenge, or even Robot Wars. I think also I used to watch makeover shows like Changing Rooms with my parents. And wasn't there some sort of thing about children you liked makeover shows because it change happened quickly? Yes, it was a very interesting reveal that some years ago that uh, the average age of people watching uh, Changing Rooms and Ground Force uh, was actually very, very young. And the reason was because the whole point of those shows was to speed up the process of transformation. I mean, transformation is a fantastic and staple of format design. You know, people love seeing something turned into something else. But what made those shows unique at the time was to take two things that were expected to take a long time and to speed them up, you know, particularly with like whizzy tornadoes saying, oh, here's a dull garden, here's a wonderful garden. And kids just love that, love that transformation. Whereas the parents are more interested in the process. Like now I have children and they're just 
constantly on their tablets watching youtube kids videos etc although occasionally i will wander into the lounge and that might be watching something like is it cake on netflix which is something so bonehead simple that i suppose like <laughs> like everybody can get principle of it very quickly so i suppose yeah. from that point of view it's it's it works well i think leading up to the pandemic there was definitely a, tra- a trajectory of parents kids and other members of the family splitting and fragmenting into silos of viewing so that people were watching on different things on different screens in different rooms. So that's apparently the technical term for it, isn't it? Siloed viewing is the opposite of of co-viewing, yeah. Yeah. However, during the pandemic, I think things changed because people found that they couldn't just watch things on other screens. They actually needed to spend time together. And also they didn't necessarily have the space to split up across the house or the flat or the apartment anyway. So people started to co-view more and started to looking started looking for content to allow them to do that. So there was a survey in May this year in the US which polled American parents with, with kids aged three to twelve. And what they found was that they had started to co-view more um, by about ninety-four percent in the previous year. Um, now obviously that year covered the pandemic. But about 86% of them said that they were going to continue to do that. And I think one of the reasons for that is because the streamers particularly have responded to this. So I don't know whether you found this with your own kits, but there is a lot more family-friendly viewing, co-viewing on the streamers as the last 12 months has progressed. Mm. And again, why does that matter? It matters because advertisers love co-viewing. They have realized that, again, in this crowded world, and this fractured and noisy world, if they want people who are watching TV to engage in a conversation about the products they're pushing, people who are co-viewing are much, much more likely to have a conversation. Yeah, I, I saw a stat that said that while people were co-viewing when children were sat with an adult, 88% of parents said that their children were actively watching the advert and taking notice. So Yeah. Well, if you think, if you take the examples, I mean, you think how many ads there are for, for family cars, for example. So you're sitting there as a family, a smart, cool family car comes on. The kids are invested in having a cool family car just as much as the parents are. If they're older kids and this family car is an electric car, then the kids might be saying to the parents, you know, Matt, why don't we get an electric car next time? So those, all the images and everything in those adver- adverts are aimed as much as the children, as the adults. Advertisers can see that co-viewing leads to a conversation. People, it takes an act of will to switch the adverts off or to go and do something else while the ads are on. And if the family are all settled in the living room, again, they are just less likely, one of them, to switch the ads off thing is, my, my son is a fan of Lamborghinis, so he seriously needs to downgrade his expectations. <laughs> okay. Well, you need to you need to watch more programs that got a Nissan Leaf. There's not just the sort of family aspect as well, but there's the adult co-viewing mm. um, and just the whole concept of watch parties. So mm. like Amazon has got a watch party feature, and, and people are also sharing shows over Discord and Zoom and similar sort of video call apps like that. Yeah. And the, you know, that obviously there was a massive boon during the pandemic, but people have continued to share programs in that way as a virtual front lounge, essentially. Yeah, I think you're right. And I think, you know, again, the moral of the story is as a format creator, it's something that you need to actively consider these days. I think you need to actually think, okay, in developing this show, who is it? You should always be asking, you know, who should this show appeal to? But I think you should also be asking yourself the question, you know, how does this work for for co-viewing? And finally, Ross King has got a celebrity-related item to show us in his show and tell. And now we're back with broadcasting legend Ross King, and he's got (laughs) something to show and tell us. So what is that object, Ross? Uh, It's it's a photograph. Am I allowed to have a photograph? Is that okay? Absolutely. Of me with Michael Douglas and Kirk Douglas. And so I'm there with two 
absolute legends. The photograph was actually taken by Catherine Zeta-Jones, and it also features the back of Catherine's dad's head. (laughs) (laughs) And this was just when they got engaged, and they had a very small dinner party in L.A. And Kirk, who was just the most incredible man, stood up and said, it's all right for you kids, but he said, I'm going now. He said, because I've got to go to the disco, he said. (laughs) And as he stood up, I thought, I am not missing this opportunity to get a photograph. And then Michael said, I want to be in it too. And then Catherine said, I will take it. And I just remember at the time thinking, wow, this is one heck of a Hollywood moment, which is me with Michael and Kirk and Catherine taking the photograph. So that's, that's, uh, that's kind of like my... My, my show and tell. But the other little one that I have is the Clang one of my MBE from the Queen because to actually have met the Queen twice and to be honoured for broadcasting and and the arts and charity is just amazing. But the funniest thing about it is that the first time that I met her very quickly, I was doing a gig in Hyde Park and she was very far back. They built a little booth for her in Prince Philip way back in Hyde Park. And at the end of it, we met the, the royal party and uh, Her Majesty chatted a little bit. And then I said, Mom, you were very far back. Could you see okay? And she said, without a word of life, she said, I was so far back, I could have stayed at home and opened a window. <laughs> <laughs> but you didn't whisper in her ear and say, I once announced that you were dead in a film. or <laughs> No, no. <laughs> I, think, I think it was more that she would have whispered to you, by the way, I had you cut from day after tomorrow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> who knows what power she has exactly (laughs) well thank you so much for bringing just a glint of la sunshine into our into our little podcast ross king it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much thank you thank you gentlemen and once more it's time to pull up a chair as we play our little parlor game at the end of the show fake or format and this time it's justin's turn to pitch two shows to me only one of which actually exists so the first one is called man versus fly man versus fly so in this format contestants are locked in a small white room which is called the fly dome <laughs> <laughs> and a fly a real fly is released into the room and they've got 60 seconds to kill it. They're not allowed to use their hands, their bare hands, but they can use anything else, and they can bring stuff into the room to kill the fly. So anything from a book to a tennis racket to whatever they like, and that's the game. So 60 seconds to kill the fly. Right. That's man versus fly. The second one is called tortoise versus hare. There's actually a Russian show called Cherypaka Protyevzaista. Sorry, Russians. It's a team game. It's played between towns and cities. And basically, on one side of the track, there's a giant hare on on a sort of rail track, which is traveling slowly in a straight line. And on the other side is a giant tortoise. And this tortoise is driven, if you like, by four players, four athletes. And they basically have got to progress the tortoise forwards going over a series of obstacles at the same time as the hare is going along the track. And the twist is that only one of the athletes can actually see where they're going. Right. Okay. So man versus fly or tortoise versus hare. There's a board game called Hare and Tortoise, but that's very, very different. Wasn't there an ITV show called Man versus Beast based on an American show? And it's one of those shows that was famous because it, it was cancelled before it even aired. <laughs> so I have a feeling that animal shows are always quite tricky. However, I've pulled that stunt of typing something into Google Translate to come up with a <laughs> fake title before. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I am aware of that, that tactic. And largely based on that front and not really much other evidence, I'm going to say that Man vs. Fly is the real one. Well, you are correct, and I think <laughs> I think it was a bad tactic in the end. So, yes, Man vs. Fly is a real show. It has actually been made in a number of countries, and there is actually a Russian version of it, ah. which I'm not going to try to describe. What I did find quite funny looking up the Russian version was the things that people had taken into the room to try and kill the fly with. So they include a guitar, 
a blender, <laughs> and a freshwater fish called a northern pike. So really, it should be called pike versus fly. <laughs> well, presumably the pike was dead by this point. But uh, I thought you used flies to catch fish, not fish to catch flies. Well, there you go, exactly. But I like I like the hare and tortoise principle. It's quite good. This. I think you should use that. <laughs> it's on another something. format, another fake format that I've put on the air for all to hear. And yet, I should be saving them up and taking them into see broadcasters. <laughs> so there we go. That's it for this episode. If you want to get in contact with us, please do so via our email, which is contact at tvshowandtell.com. Or if you can only manage one sentence, then our Twitter handle is at tvshowpodcast. Until next time, I've been David Bodicum. And I've been Justin Scroggie. And this has been TV Show and Tell. <laughs>